0: The Ringers music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify.
1: David! Sports Center anchor Kenny Main announced he was leaving ESPN last week after 27 years. What I want to know is what will we miss? about Kenny Mayne on ESPN. Wow.
2: I mean, listen, let's be honest. I don't watch ESPN. I watch ESPN regularly. I don't watch ESPN on a schedule. And so when I would see Kenny Mayne or when I would hear Kenny Mayne more often than not, uh, you know, it it was a great, it felt great. It was like an old friend sort of popping into my house and, you know, Reading, I mean, it felt like a highlight, which is, you know, I, I know it sounds like a pun, not deliberately, but so, I mean, so the way ESPN is built right now, it's just, it's, it, I'm not sure how much of a loss, a quantitative loss his absence will really be, but that's sort of a sad statement. I think that for a lot of people, I was just thinking about this, I, w- we, I would love to pull the ringer staff because it wouldn't shock me if the younger half of our staff, if, if, if for, for them, if Kenny Maine was sort of the voice of ESPN. You know, I mean, he, he was, he had, first of all, had such a distinctive voice, such a distinctive delivery so that when you, when you think about ESPN, like when we were growing up and we thought about ESPN, we thought about, well, of Keith and Dan, obviously, but you would think about them and Stuart Scott, you would think about Berman, Berman, Berman's highlights. You would think about the people with a distinct delivery to a degree that outstripped their actual presence on the network, right? Because you were. You knew ESPN, you knew SportsCenter as sort of this oddball thing. And so you like associated it specifically with the more unique voices, like literal more, literally unique voices. And and I think Kenny Mayne is in some ways just like the, the epitome of that after that first round of people. I mean, Stuart Scott obviously is not one of the dinosaurs, but you know, he tragically lost his life. Not that, I mean, in, in, in the, not so distant past, but in the past. I just think Kenny Main was the was the voice of the network for a long time.
1: Twenty-seven years. Yeah. That isn't that is an eternity. And then another eternity in television. And I totally agree with when you're saying, like, we're, we're actually kind of mourning two things. One, it sucks that he's not going to be on ESPN anymore. Mm-hmm. And it also sucks that ESPN isn't set up anymore, that it's a showcase for Kenny Main. Because that was a really cool time in 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 media when that was the case and it was almost like all those guys and they were mostly guys some women too who did SportsCenter back in the 90s they were journalists but they were also really really funny many of them and there was a little bit of like a night at the improv you know aspect where this guy does it this way this guy does it another way Kenny Mayne does it his way Stuart Mm -hmm. Scott does it his way yeah you were just getting all these approaches on the same network and on the same show, which is really, really interesting. I think the Kenny main delivery is what I will appreciate about him. You know, mm-hmm. we, we talk about how so great. droll he is, how understated he is. I also feel he's like those running backs, you know, who run really fast and they they do those kind of stutter steps and kind of run slow and then fast. He had that kind of delivery where you mm-hmm. couldn't quite tell where he's going to stop, which made him very appealing. Just a great, just a great sports center. And it's it's kind of amazing in retrospect that ESPN had the monopoly on sports highlights, but yeah. then was that good, right? Because it could yeah. have just been generic sports highlights and we just rule the universe because we're so big and no one else is gonna stop us. But they did that and then they were creative and weird within that space, which is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, farewell, Kenny Mayne. We look forward to what's next. Coming up on today's show, the CDC says fully vaccinated people can take their masks off indoors. Now it gets really complicated. Plus, the writer Sebastian Younger stops by to talk about his new book, Freedom, all that more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer podcast network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with Erica Cervantes. So right after we finished last Thursday's show... There was a huge announcement from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. After more than a year of mask wearing, David, the CDC said this. If you are fully vaccinated, you can resume activities that you did prior to the pandemic. And fully vaccinated people can resume activities without wearing a mask or physically distancing. Now, there are exceptions. You still have to wear a mask on an airplane and businesses can still make their own rules but this is huge were you as staggered as i was to hear good news in such a public forum <laughs> yeah
2: i think as with so many other things um over the past year plus it's uh i think i was surprised I, I was surprised at the way that i felt it wasn't just the surprise it was the surprise that like the feeling of relief, of, of, of joy, you know, of, of this is, um, you know, I mean, it, maybe it's because the vaccine rollout was a rollout, you know, I mean, it was sort of a, uh, an ongoing process. Um, It wasn't just one day we all got, we all showed up and got one. Uh, this felt like kind of weirdly more of, more of a, this is like the holiday that we will
1: commemorate or something,
2: you know, it's, it's a, it, it was, it was a, It was a wild sensation.
1: Yeah, the vaccine news felt like an announcement that good news was going to happen Mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah, This felt like good news, or at least new CDC recommendations, if we can sort of call those news, was here.
2: Well, you're right. That's exactly the right way to put it, because even when the vaccine news, such as it was, came out, I think we we're all justifiably confused about the timeline even and even if even the the optimistic timelines which i think we basically hit all the optimistic timelines but even if you were sort of convinced of that there's i think what we've learned over the past year is that optimism is a weird psychological phenomenon and, and you can say a thing and not necessarily internalize it you know and um and and the feelings of of like i said relief of joy that have come have been sort of after the fact over the past year kind of Beside the point sometimes. This was a real moment where it just seemed like it it felt like relief.
1: So jumping off optimism. I think optimism is hard to process for two reasons. One is we just had the year from hell. Mm -hmm. Good news feels really weird. The second thing is, and I don't want to jump off the political cliff right at the beginning of this podcast, but when we have heard, quote unquote, positivity about the coronavirus over the last year, it has often been from the mouths of cranks. And I uh-huh. think you and I have been conditioned to kind of rear up. You hear that, you know, oh, it's not such a big deal. It's the flu. It's okay. You don't need to. And all of a sudden you rear up and go, "Uh oh, no, mind, disregard what you just heard. Right. Uh-huh. Optimism, op- positivity, bad. Then you hear the CDC do it. And it's almost like you got to rewire yourself completely and go, yeah. oh, that's not coming from this guy who hosts a sports radio show. That's coming from Anthony Fauci. Mm hmm. It was just a very weird sensation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean the a couple of weeks ago when when I was uh, on with Claire, we were talking about this about about the sort of new wave of of tisk tisking even from like the sort of level-headed left online about people who were like, well, if you're not wearing a if you if you're not taking your mask off, then you're as bad as the deniers sort of, you know, like you're ignoring the science and and my I mean, obviously that's kind of deliberately arch, but you know, my response was a lot of science, for better or worse, is built in this sort of, has this sort of over caution built into it, right? You know, I mean, like if you take, if you take, you know, six Pepto Bismol tablets in 24 hours, you're probably not going to die, but they tell you you're not supposed to just so you don't take 15, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it, there, there's a lot, a lot of that is like part and parcel with the way that our medical, that medicine works, you know? And, and uh, to me, I was frankly shocked. Well, there's a lot of more, to that, more, more in, that goes into it than just that. But, but yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of jarring that we went from a moment of overcaution, deliberate overcaution, to the kind of other end of the say of the scientific spectrum, just sort of information nihilism, right? It's like we're like it's okay, we're just gonna say it's okay. We're done trying to be <laughs> paternalistic about
1: this. It's kind of a record scratch for sure. Yeah. But I also think, in, what you're talking about is because partly it's. Science, it's this whole idea of science and and what what is the recommendation that we actually need and what is the recommendation that they are kind of, you know, going two or three feet past what you need to keep everybody safe. Mm-hmm. There's that. But then there's also the whole thing with masking was about social cues and messages that people were sending by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but in my case, I have overworn a mask throughout the pandemic. I get out of my car to walk my kids in the park. I am wearing a mask. hmm. Turns out I probably did not need to do that. And over the last couple of weeks, it became especially clear that I did not need to do that, but
0: Mm -hmm. I was
1: doing it anyway, because one, I was trying to be extra, extra, extra cautious. And two, I guess at some level, I was trying to send a message in my own very small way of, Hey, this, I think masks are a good idea. Let's do this. Let's keep each other safe. Now with the new CDC recommendations, all those social cues that we had kind of learned and felt out a little bit just got completely scrambled. I want to turn your attention to this paragraph that Mitch Smith wrote in the New York Times because I love this. Quote, someone with no mask might still signify that they oppose masks and doubt the risks of COVID-19. Or it might mean the person is fully vaccinated and following CDC guidance to the letter. And someone with a mask might now be signaling their support for virus control efforts, but rejection... Of the latest CDC guidance, or Mm -hmm. it might mean that a person is unvaccinated and following the rules to stay masked, or it might mean something else altogether. (laughs) So, so you could tell something about someone or thought you could before. Guess what? Now, I don't know what we're not going to know what masks mean anymore. There's going to be this enormous amount of. You know, again, this the the social cues we relied on are now just completely scrambled up.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that even before this announcement, that was one of the things we talked about on the press box, right? Which was, it should be acceptable to project that you are, you know, trying to help, trying to be safe for everybody else, right? It's okay, and and to see somebody without a mask, I still don't think. I mean, I, all weekend I was walking around seeing people without masks. I I, I certainly. I don't think I ever got over the impulsive reaction that the people I was looking at were, I mean, your first instinct is that they're it's, these people are, you know, anti-mask, anti-science. And then you realize, no, they're probably just vaccinated. Right. I mean, but your, but the first instinct is, is I think it's a fair one. It's what we've lived with for so long. And yeah, I mean, I, and also I just think there's a big practical element to it. Right. I mean, I, I can't, obviously this, this doesn't go for everybody, but well, I mean, I wore a mask, all the time, just like you. But but as for specific moments when I was wearing a mask, like of course you wear a mask in the store in the grocery store because there's a lot of people around. But I also wore a mask from my car to the grocery store mm-hmm. because if I didn't, I might forget to put the mask on in the grocery store, right? I mean, there's like <laughs> it's like nobody, no one's like nah, I mean, I, actually, I do know people like this. Some people leave the house and they're like, you know what? I don't need my wallet today, and they roll out without the wallet, right? And they're and they're and and maybe they're right but never in my life would I ever say nah I don't need my wallet today because I can't wrap my head around life to that extent you know and I can't, and, and I can't imagine ever like being confident enough to do that even if I could so you know you wear the mask now
1: we and now we don't wear the mask i was paddle boarding the other day mm-hmm. uh, going off into the sunshine having a great time and then i realized several minutes into the session that i was still wearing the mask <laughs> on the board yeah yeah, by definition, I was not sick. I was more than six to eight feet away from the next paddle border. Mm-hmm. But it just became habit. Yeah. And I totally get what you're saying about walking into the grocery store. I do the thing where if I have like two errands that are a block apart, I just wear the mask for the car ride from one to the other. <laughs> yes. Again, in hopes that I just won't forget or do something dumb. And, it, you know, it's been a year. Yeah. It's ingrained into our heads. So we're talking about further complications. Well, here are some more. If being fully vaccinated now allows you to do all this stuff, we have to continue to confront the disparities about who has been able to get the vaccine. Out here in California, we have pretty good vaccination rates. 38% have at least one dose, more than 50% fully vaccinated. But as Rong Gong Lin, the second notes in the the Los Angeles Times, just 43% of people living in the most disadvantaged areas of California are at least partially vaccinated. While well, 63% of people living in the most prosperous areas have re- have received at least one shot statewide. Only 34% of Latino and 35% of black residents have received at least one dose of vaccine compared with 50% of white, 47% of native American and 61% of Asian American or Pacific Islander residents. And the whole approach out here, you remember David was, Hey, we're going to open a vaccine site at Dodger stadium and Disneyland and the forum. It's gonna be like a Fromer's guide to l a from the eighties. <laughs> everybody just drive over there. well, what if you have to work during the day? What if you yeah. don't have a car? you know, and it wound up missing a lot of people. so there's this whole idea of okay, well, if you're gonna give all these privileges to people now who are fully vaccinated, you have to give everybody a fair shot at being fully vaccinated mm-hmm. so that's one so the other complication is what we saw in the um what we saw with child star Ricky Schroeder. Did you see this over the last couple of days? Oh, yeah. Going to a Costco and saying, hey, they just changed the rules. You can't make me wear a mask in this business. And doing this whole video that was online about it. And again, the CDC rules are very clear. The businesses can make their own regulations about masks. But that that was in Mitch Smith's New York Times article. Like, let's say I own a bakery or I own a little shop or whatever. and now, that's already been a tension of, no, no, you have to wear a mask in my shop, customer. Now, customers are going to go, wait a second, I heard they just changed the rules. Why do I have to wear a mask in your store if the CDC is saying I don't have to wear masks inside anymore? This to me is the hardest one to
2: underst- to to feel sympathy for because it just, there's... Like of all of the, listen i I walked around a little bit this weekend down on a sidewalk with my mask off, and once i after after the first you know hour of uncertainty, it felt really, really nice, and there wasn't even a bit when I walked in the store, there wasn't a moment's hesitation of like this is an okay thing to do because that's this I didn't even look for the sign on the door, but especially if there's a sign on the door you know and and but but then again, this is sort of the original protest of the COVID era of this whole year we've lived in like before there were national and state guidelines there were stores saying put on a mask to come in and there were people complaining about it Mm -hmm. you know and that was and I'm not sure why there is the presumption that your liberty extends to the aisles of Home Depot but uh, (laughs) I mean anywhere where someone's like allowed to videotape you (laughs) Uh, with security cameras, I'm, I don't know why you think you have some kind of inherent right, but, uh, right to be maskless or whatever. But anyway, it's, it's just, I guess it's a, I guess it's a normal impulse.
1: I mean, Ricky Schroeder it is normal. I mean, to uh, wait, normal norm- to, to want to be maskless or normal to want to make a video yelling at the Costco supervisor.
2: Well, uh, I'm not going to try to understand Mr. Schroeder's <laughs> motivations, uh, especially after the past couple of years he's had in the semi-public eye, bailing out Kyle Rittenhouse and I'm sure a lot of other fun stuff, but that's kind of all you need to know about him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm just saying not, I mean, listen, I, I don't agree with it. I don't sympathize with it. I can't associate myself with it, but it's prevalent enough that I don't, can't say that I feel like, I mean, that it's, a bizarre thing to feel. It's a thing I just can't fathom, but a lot of people seem to feel this way.
1: It is weird as a lot of people noted on Twitter that you would cut a promo on the manager of Costco, who of course is not the person who is setting the policy. It's not that is not like the corporate bigwig, you know, that you're outside their office or something like that. This is a person who's sitting there like a, with a name badge on, going, you know, look, I just been told like this is the rule of the store that everybody mm-hmm. has to wear a mask. Yeah. So you're yelling at me and putting me on a national video.
2: Can I interject real quick though? Uh, and, and actually I believe this might be a variation on O'Brienism or a David and Brianism. I don't remember Uh-oh. how far back this goes. But I was with my 12-year-old the other day, he at getting gas, he ran into the the station and he came back out with kind of a you know a coke and a shocked look on his face and he was just like Dude, there was a guy in there who was just yelling at the guy behind the counter the whole time I was in there. Like, even when I was paying for my coke, like this guy was just yelling about, and I forgot what the issue was, but it was some incredibly minor grievance. You know, like you won't sell, you won't sell, you know, cigarettes to somebody without an ID or like whatever it was. And I was like, well, here's the thing. First of all, if you're yelling at the guy behind the counter of any establishment, you know, You either must know that you're not you're not yelling at the right person, or you're too stupid to realize that. But I think more importantly, I think the people that are there yelling nonstop at the at the people behind the counter at the the gas station are not unlike the people who are just like overly friendly and and wasting everybody's time at the Starbucks. You know, it's for those for some (laughs) people, for some people, whether they're nice about it or mean about it or whatever else, this is the most exciting thing that's going to happen for them in a day. (laughs) The, per- the, reason, the reason that the Subway sandwich line sometimes takes 10 minutes is because there's somebody in line for whom this is the highlight of their day. And whether that's asking the employee's opinion on every topping possible for the sandwich, or whether it's complaining about the way the bread recipe has changed to the point where you're yelling and you know screaming at the person who's been working there for 15 minutes, this is the highlight of their day. And I think that there's a lot of people who are yelling about masks for him. This is the highlight of their day too.
1: You don't think Ricky Schroeder had to get home to read the new Jonathan Franzen? You really think that was <laughs> the way his day topped out?
2: No. No, Ricky Schroeder, I'm sure, has a very vibrant life of like replying angrily to people who bring up silver spoons on Twitter, but you know. Oh uh, this is this is uh, you had to set out with this intention, right? I mean, it's just it's it's just it's just sad.
1: How do we feel about the rise of the vaccine vip section this is this n- newly common practice where like at Dodger Stadium you have a fully vaccinated fan section have to have your vaccine you have to be 2 weeks out you have to show proof but then you get to sit in the special section of the stadium
2: uh i think that's fine i think it's fine i mean i, I my my only anxiety from it comes from the perceived politicization of it but it's that's irrational i mean that that perception is irrational and that Concern should be. I think. I think it's a good thing that we overlook it, skate past it, whatever else. But that said, it's only going to be a matter of time before somebody fakes their way in and just gloats <laughs> about it online, and then that becomes the news story.
1: Right. Or 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 just sits sit there uh, recording a video of them screaming at the usher about it too. Don't rule <laughs> that out. Yeah. The New York Times had a whole roundup of these. The Washington D.C. bar Madam's Organ. Remember that place? You and I spent a night or two in there. Uh, says that only people who are fully vaccinated can get in as customers or even musicians performing at the bar. Special gym at Fort Bragg for military personnel who have been fully vaccinated. Uh, Jennifer Steinauer in The New York Times reports this. A spokesperson for Evite, you know, Evite, said 548,000 guests had received online invitations to events mentioning fully vaccinated. Or using other vaccinated related terms since March 1st, 2021, a similar company, Paperless Post, has created a specific invitation design with the inoculated in mind, vaccinated only please RSVP. So when you get the invite, it will say you only get to come if you are fully vaccinated. That is the next step in our, and and as a country, as we get around uh, the new rules, get around these new ideas. David, I want to close by listening with you to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. I don't know if you heard about this enticement, but in New York, you can go to Shake Shack and if you order a burger or a chicken sandwich and you are vaccinated, you get a free regular size fries. You know those crinkle fries (laughs) that Shake Shack has? They're fantastic, yeah. Yeah, I would would say they're pretty good, but okay, (laughs) we can can agree to disagree.
2: Now, the problem with the Shake Shack fries is that as with almost everything at Shake Shack, is that is that the burgers are so the burgers are too good.
1: That's what it is. Yeah.
2: There's no visit to Shake Shack. There's no. There's no. There's no Shake Shack meal that 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 well-rounded Shake Shack meal that wouldn't be better than its weight in Shake Shack burgers. You know right? Well, you yes. would rather have four sh- Shake Shack cheeseburgers than a double cheeseburger and fries and some chicken nuggets and a milkshake, right?
1: Are you sleeping on the shakes?
2: No, the shakes are fantastic. I'm just saying okay, it's well part of everything else. So you're saying okay. the fries
1: are the weak leg of the of the stool? The fries are Chris Bosch in this in this analogy. <laughs>
2: Don't talk about Chris Bosch that way.
1: I mean, no, I'm just saying the fries listen, are fine, but the other two are absolute all timers, and the well, look fries it, well, look are at, really I mean, good.
2: The, the Shake Shack produces some of the best chicken around, but as a part of a Shake Shack meal, I would just rather eat burgers all day.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Bill de Blasio agrees with you, David. <laughs> because he was selling this free French fry program the other day by eating a hamburger during his press conference. I kid you not, I want you to hear Bill de Blasio encouraging New York City residents to get vaccinated while eating a hamburger.
0: If this is appealing to you, just think of this when you think of vaccination. Mmm, vaccination. Mm. <laughs> I'm getting a very good feeling.
1: i'm teaching my kids right now not to talk when their mouth is full and i feel it's very threatening to have the mayor of a major american city the major american city talking while his mouth is full Mm -hmm. even in the midst of a public health (laughs) statement like this
2: even if it's funny even if it's endearing really what he's missing is the point that the Biden administration has been so good on for the past, well, since the beginning of the year, which is even if you don't actually need to wear the mask, you need to project that mask wearing is a positive thing. And you do that by wearing your mask around. He's not projecting to the children of America, Bill de Blasio, that eating, that chewing with your mouth full is bad.
1: You don't think chewing a hamburger and a mm, vaccination <laughs> gets the job done. Like wearing a mask all the time. Joe Biden has some some drawbacks as a politician, some weaknesses. He has never resorted to this in Joe Biden's favor, eating a hamburger on camera and saying mm, vaccination. So point to the White House on that one. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, an aquatic themed tweet from the New York Post. Mm hmm. Quote, diver spots fish wearing a gold wedding ring in Australia. Diver spots fish wearing a gold wedding ring in Australia. Now, I put the picture there in our Google Doc. The fish is not wearing the ring on its finger because the fish does not have fingers. The fish is kind of swam, swum into the ring. The ring is like encircling the fish, almost like a collar around the fish. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear some of the best responses? To sure. the fish wearing a gold wedding ring in Australia. Uh, fish out here getting wifed up and I can't even get a text back. Uh, okay. Great. Great. Now there aren't even plenty of fish in the sea. Mm. <laughs> That's great. The fish went to Jared. <laughs> I like that one. Uh, drip or drown. Very good. And my favorite, sea said yes. Sea. <laughs>
2: oh, I love it. I love it. Said
1: yes. Thanks to Berner McBurnerson and black Dickie greenlee for that one. This one is for our Australian listeners. Last week, David Matt Damon went on the Today Show to talk about his new movie, Stillwater. And Damon, looking rather scruffy, beamed in from an Australian sports book while having a beer. <laughs> it was an word Twitter joke to write Goodwill Punting. <laughs> Goodwill punting. Thanks to Nathan. Schmuck. And this week's runaway winner, after the CDC said we could take off our masks if fully vaccinated, people started coming up with other things the CDC is now encouraging Americans to do. Would you like to hear some of the best of those suggestions? Please. All right. New CDC guidance stipulates that vaccinated people no longer need to maintain a sourdough starter. It's just One alternative proclamation by the CDC CDC announces you can put gasoline in a bag maskless. If fully vaccinated, the CDC says vaccinated individuals may now gather in groups as large as 450,000 to invade the Russian empire without adequate supply lines or a clear strategy. (laughs) And my very favorite CDC announces that emails need no longer be prefaced with. I hope this message finds you well in these extraordinary times (laughs) Thanks to Joaquin Nagel, Jay Fisher, Andrew Johnson, hey. Scott Tobias, and Chad Orzel. If you helped America understand the new normal, congrats. You made the overword Twitter joke of the week. God, if the CDC came out and said no one is allowed, you're going to be audited if you ever send an email about these extraordinary times again. I just think all of America would be behind that. Joe, Joe Biden would get his second term right now. We wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> all right, David, in the notebook dump. I don't think any press box non-fiction pantheon is complete without Sebastian Younger. He is the author, of course, of The Perfect Storm. He's made a number of documentaries lately, including Restrepo. Well, Younger has a new, very slender book out called Freedom, and it's a meditation on the concept that proceeds from a very long walk that Younger took along the East Coast, along railroad lines. He explains, here's Sebastian Younger. All right, Sebastian, Freedom is built around a 400-mile walk that you and a couple of companions took from Washington, D.C. to Connellsville, Pennsylvania, by way of Philadelphia. What prompted the walk?
0: Well, the sort of short version is I wanted to see my country from the inside out. And the railroad lines, you know, it's illegal to walk on railroad lines. And, and uh, it, it, you see the backs of Everything the farms, the factories, the ghettos, the suburbs you're you're really right inside America, and it's it's sort of no man's land. And so there's a very marginal people out there there's there's uh, almost no police, almost no surveillance, and you can sort of sleep anywhere. I mean, it really is a sort of like you can really kind of do what you want. and uh, I wanted to experience my country in that way.
1: you said railroad lines in the book are pathologically efficient ways, I love that phrase of getting from one point. To another in this country,
0: yeah. I mean, they're the most unsentimental thing imaginable. They they just try to go as straight as possible, and as level as possible. And so you know, they they cut right across uh, river bends, and they go right through hills, and and right through towns, and right through everything. And um, so if you're, you know, I mean, I've been spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and I'm I, I'm um, you know, I love being in the wild. But what I wanted here was something where i was sort of marginal but but connected to society i mean we got our food in towns and and we had to dodge the police i mean at one point they had a helicopter looking for us and a guy shot at us in pennsylvania and also people were incredibly nice to us as well so you know it really was an encounter with my country and with each other there was um uh you know most of the time there was four people on the trip uh we'd all been in, in a fair amount of combat and uh so we, you know, we, we need and we needed each other. You know, the the book is called Freedom, and it's about um, where our freedom comes from. And one of the points I make is that no one can survive by themselves anywhere in the wilderness, along the railroad lines, anywhere. It's very, very hard. So you, you basically, you can survive if you're in a group, a survival group. But that means you have to you have to do what the group needs, and then you lose your freedom. And so it's like there really is no way to be completely safe completely comfortable and completely free it's a um that's a fantasy
1: yeah and that's a tension you explore in this book from yeah from you know pilgrim or uh, I should say uh from people who went out into the frontier the American frontier back in the 1700s to your walk in particular this tension between oh, I'm gonna be free I'm gonna nobody's gonna tell me what to do and uh-oh how am I gonna survive till
0: tomorrow yeah I mean we part of where we walk you know we walked from uh along the railroad lines mostly along their lines, uh, from DC to Philly to then we turned West. We were going to go to New York and we changed our minds. We headed West and we went to Pittsburgh, um, outskirts of Pittsburgh to Connellsville. And, um, so a lot of it was along the Juniata river, which was sort of this gateway. It was the only river that runs East West, uh, in Pennsylvania. And so it was sort of gateway through the mountains for settlers in the 1700s who were pushing into Indian lands. And it was incredibly dangerous time. uh, uh, for those people, and um, so with, the, you know, they were they were fleeing uh, economic uh, oppression, uh, political oppression. Um, they didn't like the government breathing down their neck. They didn't like the church breathing down their neck. The wilderness was freedom, but what they what they found when they got out there, of course, is that the wilderness is incredibly dangerous, particularly when it's filled with hostile native people who don't want you there. And so, to survive that. They had to basically have a communal defense pact where if there was an Indian raid along the frontier, everyone sort of like gathered at the stockade and collectively fought off the threat. And, and if you weren't willing to do that and as an adult male, if you weren't willing to carry a a, a, gun, a flintlock rifle, a scalping knife, and a tomahawk at all times, um, you were basically cast out of the community. And uh, so, you know, there went your freedom, you were, you know, free of government oppression, but suddenly you're being you're experiencing the um i don't want to call it oppression but the uh forced collaboration of your peers
1: you are giving into the strictures of society and and the demands of your neighbors and things like that so that's the irony here the closer you get to quote unquote freedom the more you have to give it up
0: right i mean the closer you get to freedom in that context the more danger you're in and you more the more you need other people in order to survive and then you have to abide by their norms and that you know like that is the human condition i mean we've Humans evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to survive in groups of 30 or 40 people. Typically, um, none of the individuals in the, those groups, and they're very egalitarian groups. And egalitarianism in a group in a society is a very powerful form of freedom. Uh, and they were extremely egalitarian. Um, there were basically no no accumulation of wealth, no no social classes in those in those kinds of groups. Um, but you know, they were completely dependent on their peers for their own survival and vice versa. So um, that kind of like complete autonomy. I'm uh, I'm alone and I can do whatever I want is just uh, you know, it's a Western fantasy. It's complete nonsense.
1: You consider so many interesting notions of freedom over the course of this book. And I perked up when I saw the words infrastructure plan, since Congress is considering one right now. How do infrastructure plans and freedom intersect?
0: Well, any society, whether you're hunter-gatherers and in uh in East Africa, 100,000 years ago, or Americans in 2021, every society comes to collective decisions about what to ask from its individuals and how to use its resources and how to how to share things in a fair way that continue the survival of the group. That's just what humans do, and uh, so what our nation, what every nation does is, you know, figure out what what do we need from the population in order. To safeguard life and maintain our standard of living, and the Biden administration is deciding that our, we depend on our infrastructure, and that, that it's got to be, it's got to be fixed. Uh, it's got to be improved. You know, I'm a journalist, and I'm agnostic on policy, um, but I will say, as, an, as a former anthropologist, uh, that the fact that we all collectively owe something to the um, our sort of group welfare is is not a radical and new idea it's extremely ancient
1: yeah you mentioned albert gallatin who had a very interesting had a very old idea of an infrastructure plan at that point roads and railroads and that involves seizing people's land right then in, in a sense taking away some of their freedom
0: oh yeah gallatin was a a uh he was a, a swiss um uh he was a citizen of switzerland he came to this country um in the in the 1800s and um so he, or earlier, um, but in, in the early 1800s, he devised a plan to uh, build a national railroad system. I mean, what was happening is that the East Coast cities, I mean, does this sound familiar? The East Coast cities were cosmopolitan, they were increasingly affluent, um, and the interior, uh, were sort of languishing because they were out of touch. They had, no, they had no easy way to get to the coast to transport their goods, their crops to the coast. It cost mo- as much to transport a bushel of, of corn to Philadelphia from, the, from Western Pennsylvania as it was worth in the market. So, Gal- what Gallatin dis- realized is that if the United States did not invest in, in, in the railroads and canals, something way beyond the scope of private industry to do if, if, uh, on its own, if they didn't invest, you know, basically, the 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 country would become sort of pot bound. I mean, we would grow and grow, but we'd be confined to this little strip of um, of coastal plain uh, before the Appalachians, and and what could be the mightiest nation in the world would never be. So, he uh, it, it eventually his plans were implemented in a different fashion. But basically, the federal government undertook this massive project of building, you know, a railroad system that could cheaply and easily transport produce. All around the country, and eventually that that system reached all the way to California. What they had to do though is uh, use eminent domain to to seize private property where it would you know when it was in the way of the route of the railroad and uh so th- you know this all went to this all went to court and um and the court agreed that it was in the public interest the railroads were so much in the public interest this huge infrastructure project was so much in the public interest that it, it gave the government the legal right to seize property from private people and compensate them. and uh, and the 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 court's wording was it was the railroad's ability to annihilate distance that made it so valuable. So you know so, so there you have the courts and the government deciding this is for the, the, the it was for the greater good. Some people are going to be hurt by this for trampling on their individual right to own property. But at some point, society has to make large-scale decisions that benefit everybody, and that's what we're going to do.
1: You also have a really interesting discussion of numbers called Gini coefficients, which you say are a measure of freedom. How do they work?
0: Uh, the Gini coefficient, yeah, you know, basically it, it measures the the difference uh, in income between um, the more affluent parts of society and the and the poorer parts of society, and so the, the greater the spread between those two. Um, the more, um, the larger, the basically, in, well, the income gap, and you can infer economic injustice and all that from that number. So basically, hunter-gatherers who are, who are extremely egalitarian have a Gini coefficient of 0. 0.25. It's under, you know, it basically ranges from 0 to 1.0. 0. So 0. 0.25, uh, basically one quarter, uh, is, is much closer to complete equality, complete egalitarianism than it is to complete monopoly. Um, The United States has one of the highest Gini coefficients, in other words, is one of the most unequal in terms of income um, in the Western world. Uh, It's on a par with the Roman Empire. Um, uh, The Gini coefficient is, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, in the low uh, 40s, 0.41, 0.42. Medieval Europe was 0.79. Unbelievably unfair, and that was that was brought down by the Great Plague, the Black Death, which killed so many people, killed one third of Europe, and suddenly there was a shortage uh, of, of labor because so many people died, and so that that sort of redistributed the wealth.
1: And as you write, it would be nice to think that egalitarian societies are going to be the ones that rise up to dominate world events, but that's not exactly the case.
0: Right? I mean, what the. Um, as a, a i mean my, my my personal history is i came from a very liberal environment and went to a liberal college a liberal family and i vote democratic so you know when i i i just as i was writing the book i just assumed like a you know very economically unfair system is bound to collapse and sort of like uh rearrange itself in a more um in a more fair way and that those countries aren't going to do very well that that sort of social justice and economic justice are basically very very um that they're socially healthy and will will make for powerful countries. And actually, it's the reverse. I mean, if you look, if you look at um, I'm sorry about the noise. I'm in New York City right now. And the windows are open. It's a hot <laughs> it's a day. I don't have AC. Uh, so so if you look at the really powerful empires throughout the world, the Han Dynasty, the Roman Empire, America, what they're, they're typified by a high Gini coefficient. Really egalitarian societies. I mean, there's many good things to recommend them, and personally, they're to my taste, right, political taste. But they actually, they're actually historically not very powerful. The, the societies that have really dominated uh, the territory of the world uh, and the population of the populations of the world typically have high, are not quite, are not very economically fair. They have high Gini coefficients.
1: You had a nice phrase: a sweet spot of economic injustice is what seems to propel a country into world yeah. power.
0: Right. And and I'm not, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying we should not endorsing Yes, <laughs> I'm not endorsing it. I'm just I'm just pointing out the research of other people that have shown that a not a not a not a very high, but a moderate amount of economic injustice uh, basically collects a lot of capital in the hands of relatively few people. And that capital can be used in sort of dedicated ways to expand the power of that country, of that empire. And so that seems to be. Um, a, uh, a a path to, uh, t- to territorial and, and population control that a very egalitarian hunter-gatherer society will never, never even aspire to, much less attain.
1: So you and your companions are walking along the railroad tracks, and you note that when you're doing this, you are technically trespassing at pretty much every moment. How did you guys avoid authorities on your trip?
0: Well, the the nice thing about Railroad Line is it's dead straight a lot of the time. And um, you also got, we got very sensitive to feeling trains coming. I mean, we couldn't even hear them, but you could, you know, they'd be miles so off and you just, something would change in the air. You know, these big freight trains or the Amtrak's that were going really, really fast and you could just kind of feel it. And we'd look at each other and we'd all, you know, the engineers will call you in. So we sort of dive into the underbrush when we could. Uh, but, you know, also like everything, every, everything out there, you can see from quite far off, off, you know, like patrol cars, police patrol cars. So, you know, when we were, when we thought someone was looking for us, you know, we just go into the woods for a while, you know, boil some coffee, smoke a cigarette, wait, see if, see if some cops went by. At one point they were looking for us with a helicopter. Uh, that was a surprise. And I'm (laughs) I'm not proud of that, (laughs) that I caused so many, so many people, uh, you know, wasted their time for a few hours. Um. You know, I think they just didn't know what we were and and were worried about it. It was quite late at night.
1: And you also read you were constantly worried about locals in all these towns that you're walking through. Why worried about how locals would react to you?
0: Oh, you know, just um, there were a lot of there was a lot of gunfire in Pennsylvania. Um, there was, you know, you just hear pickup trucks full of guys going by on the on the on the local roads, you know, yelling and throwing beer bottles out of the windows and sometimes shooting out of the windows. And you know we're outsiders, and we you know we're basically vagrants, and uh, that makes some people extremely friendly, and other people not so much so. And we, you know, we just it was paranoid of us, but we also it's you know America can be a weird country. Every country can be a weird country, and we were outsiders everywhere we went, and we were exhausted, we were filthy, you know. We uh, some people I think could have seen us as as a threat, maybe. Anyway, we were very careful. We slept with a in places where we were hidden we had where we could sort of see out fairly well um if we were worried about anything we'd walk at night because anything on the lines at night has to have a headlight on it and so and we don't and so we we could see that coming a mile off and so that you know our ultimate refuge was walking at night because that nothing could get close to us out there at night
1: there's one point in the book where you guys were forced to sleep on the track bed itself so a couple of feet away from where trains would pass how does one pass a night on the track bed.
0: Oh, that was hellish. Uh, we w- one guy, well, we woke up in the morning and you know these freights would go by like a few feet from our head and uh, we were on the top ballast which is this crushed rock that they make railroad beds out of and there just was no room anywhere else. It was just a miserable spot. And uh you know we we didn't stop walking till about midnight. We just sort of lay down and stretched out and these freights would thunder by and um wake us up every 20 minutes. It would really Ugh. and so this guy, you know, uh, this guy woke up in the morning and we, we all woke up and the first thing he said was, um, you know, frankly, I'd rather be mortared and we'd all been, <laughs> we'd all had experiences being mortared. So we all knew exactly what that meant. And I was like, yeah, man, I think I might be with you. Like that might've been easier. Every 20 minutes. No, whatever. I mean, the freights, you know, they run the freights at night because the the passenger trains aren't going. And so the sort of freights own the nighttime, and, and they, they just push those things through. You know, we're on the East Coast, the East Coast corridor. Like, they were pushing that stuff through constantly. And uh, uh, I, I love the freight chains. I mean, they're long. They didn't go that fast. And they were just, I mean, America moves so much stuff around, right? I mean, cattle and coal and tractors, and you just tanks, Humvees, like, you name it. It's going by on a flatbed or in a car, and it, and it just is sort of fascinating to watch it go.
1: Freedom's one of your shorter books, 133 pages before the notes. What's different for you about writing a book like this versus writing one two or three times as long?
0: Yeah, well, you know, my first book, The Perfect Storm, was about something that happened. um, A a huge storm that sank a fishing boat out of Gloucester. Um, um, A Death in Belmont was a cold case of a murder in 1963. War was about a a single deployment with a platoon in eastern Afghanistan. These are all events that, you know, you really want to document not endlessly, but, but very, very thoroughly. That takes some time. It takes some pages. My book Tribe and this book Freedom, they're not documenting events. They're about an idea. And I feel that the, 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 the um, more efficient you can be in explaining the heart of your idea and the basis for your thinking, the more people will retain it. And really what you're trying to do, I mean, I'm not trying to be comprehensive. You could write almost endlessly about the topic of freedom. And it goes to the core of the human experience. It's a word that's horribly misused. Um, you could write on and on and on about it, it never sort of reach the end. But what I'm trying to do is give people a sort of way of thinking about it, and then starting a conversation with them that, then they, that they can then continue. Um, and so when you're, for me, when I'm writing about an idea, a concept, I try to get in and out very quickly. I use as few words as possible, and I really try to get people just to implant an idea and then, as a writer, leave.
1: Do you get a different kind of satisfaction as a writer finishing a short book versus a long one?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, yes, I do. I, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's conceptual. So did I communicate the sort of core concept that um, I set out to communicate? Um, I, I'm not trying to recreate a a world or a situation. It's an idea. And so my you know very briefly, throughout human history, freedom in our for our purposes means if can can we maintain our autonomy from a greater power that wants to control us? That's what freedom means, and for our purposes. So traditionally throughout history, which goes obviously, we're going back hundreds a hundred thousand years at least. Um, the first thing that people, that a, a community, a group will do is try to outrun their oppressor. And, that, and, and humans are very effective at that. I mean, sort of larger, powerful societies are actually not very mobile. Um, uh, they're rooted in place to towns. Uh, they have a lot of equipment, um, bureaucrats, whatever. It's a, it doesn't move very easily. Nomads move extremely effectively. So outrun your oppressor. If you can't do that, you're going to have to outfight them. Um, humans are um, just about the only mammal where a smaller individual or a smaller group of individuals can defeat in combat. Physical combat can defeat a larger individual or group. Uh, that is not true in any other mammal. And um, I looked at MMA statistics, mixed martial arts. The larger man in a, in a mixed class MMA fight um, only wins 50% of the time. Size and strength are a poor predictor of outcome. That is not true for chimpanzees, for other mammals, Um, but in humans, it is true. And the smaller group can outfight the larger group. The Taliban fought us to a standstill for 20 years, the greatest military power ever in history, and we are pulling out on their terms, right? Um, I loathe the Taliban. They're an awful regime. They are antithetical to human freedom. But the fact that a small group can actually defeat or outlast the uh, the um, the will to fight of the of the greatest military in history means that freedom is possible. It means that we had a chance at fighting the Brits, winning against the Brits in 1776, and in fact we did win.
1: Over the last year, I think I heard the word freedom used mostly in terms of the coronavirus. You know, you are infringing on my freedom when you make me wear this mask or take some precaution. What did you make of that usage of the word?
0: I I mean that. They're misunderstanding the the word they're really, the word they're looking for is rights. You're infringing on my rights. Uh, freedom and rights are not the same thing. There are unfree societies where people have specific rights and uh, there are free societies where you don't have specific rights. Um, and for example, just an interesting example, um, I mean, rights are conferred by the group to the individual. So in our society, it's not illegal to cut the line at the bank, right? it's not illegal there's no laws against that no but you don't have the right to do it because that the group of people in the line will object they haven't granted you the right if you run in and say uh my you know uh, my i gotta take you know i got a baby i gotta take him home i gotta get some money do you mind if i cut the line the whole line might say yeah go ahead man no problem right you get your rights from the group so the individual actually is not in a position to determine their rights you can't decide that you just want to not stop at red lights or drive on the left-hand side of the road. That's not something the individual has the, has the, the power, the authority, the right to do. Um, if you're part of society, whether you like them or agree with them or not, the, the rules that society comes w- up with are your rules. And if you want, you can leave. You can go to a country that doesn't have rules like that. Somalia is an awesome place if you don't want rules and no government. There are places in the world where you can do that. It just not, doesn't happen to be America.
1: Two more before I let you go. You've done a lot of magazine writing in your career. We've seen lately the magazines have shrunk. The frequency has gotten less because the world has changed. The media world has changed. Do you think that kind, kind of writing is going to go somewhere else? Or do you think it's just going to disappear?
0: I, you know, I think the heyday of you know magazine writing in the 90s, early uh, 2000s, is that what they're called? Um, I think that's pretty much over with. I mean, it's shifted. A lot of writing has shifted online, um, which is sort of good and bad. I think. Uh, I mean, I made a living for a while as a magazine writer. I really enjoyed it, I, and I, I regret that it's gone because I wish another generation of young journalists had that as a forum. It's amazing, you know. But um, I think I think that's for economic reasons. That's that's pretty much over with.
1: Finally, until 2019, you were the co-owner of a bar on the West Side of Manhattan called the Half King which I went to a lot, attended a lot of readings at uh, yeah. and, and had a lot of drinks at that uh, weren't attached to readings. What would you get out of owning a bar and that whole experience?
0: You know, we, uh, me and a, a few friends uh, built that in 2000s, and we were all in, involved in the world of foreign reporting and journalism and publishing. And we wanted to create something that was both a, a sort of local community place uh, for the local neighborhood and a sort of like gathering place for people in our in our line of work and it worked um, and wh- what did we get out of that we had um, I had a place to invite people to and extend our hospitality to and uh, And whole conversations about the world and about our work uh, um, After 9 that was a very became a very important place. I mean it the 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 what we don't have now is a um, sort of communal, a communal central space for people to gather and talk and exchange ideas and have a sort of reciprocity of ideas. and 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 bars are that now in a in an urban context. Um, and that was ours for a little while. And I loved, you know, I loved sort of being generous with what we had. It's an amazing feeling to to own a place and buy someone dinner. It's the best feeling in the world that you can, you know, welcome people into your place and and return their um, return their thoughts with something, you know, like something like that. And I like I, I really regret that it's gone. A lot of people really missed it. And I mean, I have two kids now. I don't think I'd be up there much, but that, you know, there was a lot of grief in the community about it ending.
1: Is it true what you told the New York Times that your original conception of a bar was to buy a building in Red Hook, put the bar on the bottom floor, and have a fireman's pole where you could <laughs> uh, come down from your apartment into the bar?
0: Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yes, me and, uh, uh, me and my good friend Scott Anderson, another foreign reporter, that was our, um, uh, before we realized that um, that it would, it would actually help to make money at the bar, <laughs> uh, that was our idea.
1: All right, when the kids grow up, you you promise me your next bar is going to have the fireman's pole, so you can absolutely descend and and do a reading. Sebastian Younger's new book is Freedom. Sebastian, thanks so much for coming on the Press Box. Thank you. All right, time for David Shoemaker. Guess is the strained pun headline. Yeah. Last Thursday's headline about a Peloton data leak was, I know where you worked out last summer. (laughs) This week's headline comes from Stephen Elliott. It's from the alt-weekly The Nashville Scene. I think its first appearance on this feature, Stephen Elliott himself wrote a report about four months of the Republican-controlled Tennessee legislature. And two of the subjects the legislature addressed, David, and please put on your listening ears, as they say in pre-K, were handgun permits and the COVID vaccine. Handgun permits and the COVID vaccine. The paper went very Jared Diamond in their front page treatment for this story. What was the Nashville scene strain pun headline?
2: Handgun permits. So and the COVID vaccine. So guns, germs, and and mm. uh, okay, two two of the subjects. They're they're very carefully here. Guns, germs,
1: and what do we do at a at in, in a legislature? Squeal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the pulled pork they serve in Tennessee. Gun, yeah,
2: I know. Gun. That's actually that a great restaurant. Uh, guns, germs, and Yeah, you know,
1: lawmakers, that get are, together. They want to make... Deal, deal. Gun, germs, and deals. Very That's nicely good. done. That's good.
2: Very
1: what good. I love... One of the things I love about you, David, is I can say Jared Diamond, and there, didn't, there doesn't need to be any more explanation. <laughs> yeah. You don't say, who's that, or what book did he write? You just say it. By the way, I don't want to... Sp- uh, yeah. I don't want to spring this on you, but... Um, I think we might have uh, a runway here for a new feature on the press box. Oh, do tell. Our friend Chad Orzel sent in a headline the other day uh, from his local newspaper, I believe. And the headline was activists, colon, more reforms. <laughs> that was the headline. Now, as you know, by definition, activists in this country want more reforms. You would not be an activist if you wanted things to stay the same. And he suggested that maybe we have a contest for the most generic headline possible. (laughs) As it happens, we had just recently gotten another headline Uh, that was right up up this alley. It was from our friend John Walters. And this was the headline, Police Searching for Man. Okay. So we've got Mm -hmm. a pretty good, that's it. Police Searching for Man. Presumably, all crimes are not solved. So police are always searching for someone. But Police Searching for Man was the headline.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's great.
1: So PressBox listeners, this is your job. Find the most generic headline possible. The two to beat are activists, colon, more reforms and police searching for man.
2: Oh, I love it.
1: We will collect them at a later date. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Thursday with Jeff Gwynn, author of the new book War on the Border.
2: And Brian's childhood mentor.
1: Absolutely. Plus more lukewarm takes them about the media. See you then, David.
2: Later, Brian.